0: Project
1: A podcast. Hi, welcome to the Project A podcast. Uh, This week we have an awesome episode uh, with my colleagues on the investment team, Francesca, Sharanya, and Luke. We'll be giving people an insight behind the scenes of a venture firm, what it's like to get uh, an investment done. So, guiding you through what the process looks like from sourcing. Uh, all the way through to term sheet. We want to do this podcast to give founders an insight of what the process is like uh, at Project A, how we tend to work and give a bit more clarity on uh, what it's like to work with us at the very early stages. Maybe now handing over to our fantastic guests. Uh, so they'll give a, a longer introduction, but three relatively new joiners to the Project A investment team, uh, Sharanya, Francesca, and Luke. Maybe over to Sharanya for a quick introduction on yourself and how you got into venture.
2: Sounds good, so hello, um, I'm Sharanya. So I have a background in um, electronics engineering. I worked in Qualcomm for a couple of years. Um, Then I did my masters in, in Paris in strategy. And I did a couple of internships in various places because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I enjoyed my um, experience at another venture capital fund and then um, decided to join Venture full-time. Very lucky to have
1: you on the team. Maybe over to Francesca. And I guess this is somewhat ironic that uh, we are now on the Project A podcast because uh, you and I recorded your own podcast Uh, in September of last year but but over to you to to give context.
0: (laughs) Yeah no right exactly the tables have turned for sure so uh, a little bit of background on me Um, so biologist by degree but then decided to um, not be a scientist, mainly due to the fact that I like natural light um, and and many other things that science wouldn't give me. So I jumped into the startup world where um, I worked at an e-commerce startup heading up the operations there. So plenty of learnings having seen it rise and fall and then subsequently moved into venture capital where I worked at Playfair which was an amazing experience. Subsequently after that, I moved to True, which is a retail and consumer private equity firm. But I actually worked on the consulting arm where I advised a number of clients such as Marks & Spencers, Abercrombie & Fitch & Shell on how to innovate. So again, yeah, very, very interesting. And whilst I was at True, as Sam alluded to, I started a podcast called Associated, which is all about making venture capital more accessible. And I was very fortunate enough to... Bump into Sam um, along the way, and and recorded an episode which was super fun, and that's actually how I ended up um, getting recruited to Project A, so that's that's my story. And uh, Luke, I think you're the last, uh, save the best, right?
3: <laughs> yeah, uh, too kind of you to say, Francesca. Uh, happy to introduce myself. Happy to be here with you all. Um, the quick and skinny on me, on me is that I am um, like Alex. I'm a philosopher turned data scientist. Prior to Project A, I worked, uh, spent a year and a half with the French Army Advanced Technology Development Agency, our French equivalent to the DARPA, in a special projects lab uh, for a while. Just like you, Francesca, I did enjoy natural light, uh, left that environment um, fairly soon after after a year and a half, essentially. Prior to that was also in private equity, doing growth, investing, and in a bunch of early stage ventures. As an operator, my story into VC, um, as everyone would say, is, is very uncommon, uh, which makes it, I guess, fairly banal. Uh, but um, I wanted to be a data scientist. That was my, my end goal. And a good friend of mine I, at, at some point uh, slapped me on the wrist and, and uh, made me realize that I would be probably miserable in a, a role where I would focus exclusively on one project for very long periods of time. Um, without much social interaction. He directed me to this career in venture capital, and I was lucky enough to meet Sam and join the London office at Project A.
1: Nice. Let's go. Maybe maybe just to contextualize this conversation and give our listeners a bit more of an insight into what a process looks like, we're going to use one example of an investment which we did in Q4 of 2020. The company is called Butter. Uh, They effectively allow... Uh, workshop facilitators to run uh, online workshops through a video workflow tool. J- just to kick off, it'd be great to get a, an overview of how the investment team processes, deals, what the main goals are, Sharanya.
2: Yep, so, well, obviously as in most venture capital funds, the main goal is to find and invest in the best possible companies. Um, and I guess different funds do this in different ways, but um, we just like to have as many interactions as possible with founders to um, learn more about them, learn more about the company, and um, yeah.
0: Yeah, sure, absolutely, and I think that's what's quite exciting about our roles in particular, so Srania, Luke, and is is that one of the things that we're very busy doing is is the sourcing component and and actually one reason why I built Associated in the first place is that um, it's very important for for founders to know Associates because they're the ones scouting and screening for various companies so perhaps just to run through super quickly the the various channels and guys please uh, let me know if I've missed anything So typically, um, a lot of the time we're asking other funds what they're seeing. Um, As you can imagine, that really does um, enable us to find super quality deals because the other associates on those teams have screened various places to locate those companies. So we're always very excited about talking to other funds about what they're looking at. Um, We also work a lot with accelerators. So we go to a lot of demo days um and uh, a good example of what an accelerator might be so antler is is up there um that we often go to as well can it can I, any of you guys what what have you seen recently i've found this factory i believe are there any other we look, favorites
3: we look a bit at entrepreneurs first as a another good accelerator
0: yeah exactly. uh, and,
3: and yc of course
0: Yes, so yes. Well, I see as well. Um, LinkedIn is obviously a place that we really, really like, do like to look at um, in terms of anyone changing their profile to stealth mode or um, a co-founder of X. So we, we do get very excited about that. Um, other founders as well within our portfolio and our network, they often do a lot of referrals. So that's super helpful and a great way to get some super incredible deal flow through them and also news articles. So um, as we previously mentioned, we tend to look at seed series A. So any company that's renou- announced a, a pre-seed deal, um, we're also quite interested in, in looking out, uh, looking at and and reaching out to. Um, Yeah, so that's around about what what we do. Have I missed anything, guys?
3: Yeah, perhaps one thing that's worth adding, I would say is we typically, what you typically notice in, in the lively startup ecosystem is those pools of talents around specific companies. If you look at the US, the PayPal mafia would be one. Um, but that happens in Europe as well. Um, if you look at Criteo, for instance, the alums from Criteo have built a handful of companies. Uh, one of our portfolio company, Trade Republic, is also we would say a, a strong pool of, of talent where you know we can expect new companies to be built at some point around these people. Same from Adian, same from other large scale companies.
1: And I mean, it's worth also saying that uh, whilst we have a, a bunch of different sources, there are probably a few that we tend to try and prioritize internally. Um, also worth mentioning that uh, one of the key ways in which founders can reach us is we do have a new business link so people can uh, reach out to us via our website. It automatically gets uploaded to our CRM uh, and then we tend to connect with founders through that. But m- maybe shranya you want to give a view on um, just what the various uh, how we categorize the deal sources themselves and just typically what, uh, sorry, let me start that sentence again. Um, maybe Shran, you want to give a view on uh, how we prioritize certain uh, deal flow channels uh, and maybe more specifically uh, the numbers in terms of how that's translated to, uh, I guess, first calls, partner calls, and ultimately uh, due diligences.
2: so, Usually um, the first step of our process is a first um, IM call. That's the first time we meet the founders. It's a chance for us to make a good first impression and also learn more about the founders. So we typically see, um, I think last year we saw 659 um, quality deal flow calls. So these are calls which we, um, which we heard of from other folks. Then, um, we we got like 223 deals from screenings we got 84 deals from like various other sources that is either cold reach outs or from the new business pipeline um so this but yeah we i would say like the majority of our deal flow usually comes from quality deal flow calls and screenings and also worth mentioning
1: i mean i think kind of very top of funnel we looked at, I think, 8,000 deals last year. So from that 8,000, seemingly 659 translated into a first call, um, which maybe gives you a sense on, you know, just how many deals that we we tend to look at or screen and how many make it through that initial step. So just to finish on uh, Butter, so, we effectively did uh, an initial call, myself and Luke. We then did a second call, myself and Luke and Uva, who's one of the general partners of Project A. We did a third call, which was myself, Luke, Uva, and Anton, who's another one of the general partners. And then we took the company to management presentation. Um, swiftly after that, we gave them a term sheet, uh, which thankfully they accepted. Um, And we are now a proud partner of that company. Maybe to switch gears a bit, to get into the first call. So, you know, we've kind of described what those deal flow sources are, um, you know, the the various channels that we tend to look at, which ones tend to convert a bit better. Um, Sharanya, I mean, give us an insight into what happens on the first call and, and what the purpose of that call is.
0: Actually Sam before before that question, I was curious to know actually how you found out about butter, how did you source butter?
1: That is a very good question, so it actually got um, sent to us via uh, another investment fund, so um, said investment fund which we will uh, not disclose the name of um, (laughs) effectively had a conflict, so What that means is they have a company in their portfolio that is in some ways uh, similar to Butter, therefore they couldn't invest in Butter themselves. They sent us a note saying, hey, I think this company and founder are awesome. Uh, Might it be relevant to you? Uh, At which point we uh, effectively reached out. I think myself, I think it was me or Luke uh, effectively connected with Jacob, the founder via LinkedIn. Uh, sent him a message saying, Hey, we heard you're building something awesome. We also sent him a link to our thesis on workflow collaboration. Nice. Um, so, this just detailed kind of how we thought about the space generally. I think one thing that I actually still remember from that process is that Jacob sent back a r- really long LinkedIn message saying, Hey, um really like your piece on workflow collaboration these are the things that i agree with and these are the things i disagree with nice. um which, which we thought was super interesting because actually most founders tend to just say like hey yeah that sounds good mm-hmm. let's arrange a call so yeah that that's how we got connected um and that led us to the first call which Sharanya is going to give a bit of a high level insight into yep so the first call
2: is usually the first time you're meeting the company in person. It's like a lot of um, fun to meet the founders, to hear about the company in their own words. So typically we um, evaluate things like um, how well the founder is suited for this particular company, um, how well they're able to pitch. Also, we'd like like to dig deeper into the product and try to understand if it's solving a specific need, how does it fit into the landscape of the market? So I guess those are things which typically I look at, but maybe you guys can chip in if there's some other things which you, which you guys like in the first call.
1: Yeah, Luke, may, maybe you want to take this one. I know you thought about this a lot.
3: Uh, absolutely, it's a fascinating topic. How how to form an impression of a founder and a company in in the brief thirty minutes that you have with them is uh. I think a very arduous task and, and one of the most rewarding part of this job. And at a very high level, I, I think one of the most helpful frameworks I've, I've, I've heard out there, and it's not specifically for venture, it comes from Hamilton Helmer in, um, in a book called The Seven Powers Strategy Book, which um, is, is, is quite interesting. And essentially, uh, he has this um, framework about the three S of value creation, which I always think about. The first S is superiority, which is just the benefit of the, pro- of the product. What, what problem does it solve and in what way it is superior to what companies or people are currently using, if they're using anything. Um, and, and usually what we'll see in B2B products is that you have extremely manual cumbersome processes and someone came up with a very brilliant solution to those and so that's what that's the first thing superiority and what we product is is excellent and then the second one is um, significance so there we look at the criticality of the problem most products solve a problem but depends uh, you know not all problems are made equal some problems are very painful very expensive occur very regularly um, and frequently um, and and so we would assess uh, you know product criticality and the size of the market generally and the last thing we try to think about i mean this comes uh, this gets more relevant further down the line but even a first call you can think about it is this um, sustainability which is to wonder about whether there is any defensibility whether from technology or network effect to the product so i would say that's how i think about the first call
2: thanks luke i guess um, almost all of us seem to have our own ways of like you know analyzing it and that's Perhaps why you need like different people looking at the same company. Um, maybe one more thing to point out here is like also the most passes happen at this stage, just because it's the top of the funnel. We see so many companies. Um, of course, like you, you can't really bucketize why we pass companies. Um, it depends on the sector, on the stage, so many other reasons. But typically, I see um, companies. Um, which are perhaps not super differentiated. So when you end up seeing a lot of companies which do the same thing, you, you always wonder, well, why would I pick one over the other? So that's like one reason I, um, I seem to be facing a lot.
1: And, and I think one thing that we find, you know, we are diligencing the depth of the problem and to some extent, diligencing, you know, the potential solution. Um, And, you know, given venture has been so proliferated or more sort of startup creation has become so proliferated and competitive, I think we spend quite a bit of time figuring out, you know, uh, how much better this potential product or solution is versus competitors. Does it effectively solve the problem? How does it solve the problem? Is this the right founder or the right team to A, build it? Um, and be effectively sell it through time Uh, I think one thing that to to your point it is quite difficult to explain as a venture investor is that everyone has their own sort of internal frameworks in terms of how they diligence companies and I think a lot of these are um, to some extent um, sort of predefined from the experiences that we've had before, not only in terms of where we've worked before, you know, where we've been operators, um, but where we've seen successes and failures within startups. And we tend to kind of apply that framework and that mosaic to, to the companies that we tend to, to look at. Um, so to maybe qualify what Sharanya said, so um, I think as of uh, last year, so in 2020, we did, over a thousand uh, first calls, of which about 250 translated into a partner call. So to your point, Sharanya, this is the most common stage where where we tend to pass and the conversion rate from this stage onto the next stage, which is the partner call, is about 25% uh, approximately. Um, Luke, maybe you want to share what that first meeting was like with jacob at butter and you know how we thought about converting that to to the next stage
3: of the process absolutely that's uh those are good memories so uh, very happy to bring them up i think what really struck struck us during this first call with jacob was just the general quality of him as a founder Uh, jacob is a very high energy high positivity high optimism guy who really made us dream i think in this first 30 minutes um you know he had a very large ambitious vision as well as a very clear plan on how we wanted to get there and and, um, so as I remember this first call I think the the purpose of it was you were in charge of uh, of the call and needing it and what I remember from that session was that you were um, essentially probing into how is Jacob as a founder Um, what how does he think about things rather than you making the assessment, you were looking at how Jacob made the assessment on his own company, which i I think is a very interesting way to to do those initial calls. Um, yeah, and then we at the end of that call, I remember very clearly, we we said that we really like Jacob. We find him um, to be to be to seem to be an exceptional founder. And we still had some doubts, um, particularly regarding the markets. And then we ended the first call saying, okay, now we need to, be to do our uh, famous homework. And um, that's what typically happens after the first call is that you would uh, keep digging onto the topics where y- you think might be important to cover um, as, as uh, you progress through the funnel.
1: I would f- fully agree with that. And I think one of the things that we'd liked is, you know, you and I, Luke, spent an absolute ton of time thinking about, workplace collaboration and I think we developed a few specific theses in regards to what we wanted to see in a company there and um, I think Jacob as we said earlier he you know uh, gave us an insight into maybe where our theses were not wholly correct um, but maybe helped us think through the space itself and kind of the general opportunity of of effectively building an online product for, for workshop facilitators I think what I remember from that it was fairly clear to us that it should be a partner call um, and I think we we might have told him on the call specifically that um, we want to effectively loop in UV, who's one of the general partners uh, and dig a bit deeper did you want to say
3: something Francesca?
0: Yeah, the the only yeah, I mean, it's it's so interesting here to hear you say that. I think a question that I often get from founders is like, what should I do in this first call? Like, often at the beginning of the call is like, should I present the deck or should I just go ad lib? And and personally, I don't have a preference really. Personally, I don't. Personally, I don't have a preference really. Um. And I think, you know, to the point of what Sharanya and Luke were discussing, those are the things that we want to find out. I think it's quite nice to almost have a bit of variation, like what the founder wants to get across um, in in their own way, his and hers own way, I think is, is really important. And I really like that, you know, one session you'll be having a founder that is going through the deck and really picking it apart. And another is just going ad lib or as one founder put it to me the other day, but with my heart, um, <laughs> so yeah, like I think it's quite nice. But I don't know whether you guys have a preference at all um, of like which ones you prefer. But I, I quite like the the variation as long as you get those points across right to to sell your your dream and your vision.
1: For sure, and I think one of the things that's um, that is very different over the last sort of fourteen or fifteen months, let's say, is we've all gone to default remote. So every meeting happens on Zoom, whereas some of them would happen in person. Um, I mean, one of the things that I always think is, you know, it's ultimately up to the founders in terms of what makes them feel most comfortable, whether that's a pitch deck, whether that's uh, freestyling, whether that's kind of walking through um, a specific thesis that they have on, on what they're building. Um, one thing I find in Zoom, and maybe I shouldn't admit to this is, sometimes looking through slide decks tends to kind of distract from, you know, more of the interpersonal connection with the founder themselves. I don't think it's necessarily wrong, but I think, you know, effectively presenting to a deck should be used relatively selectively as opposed to, you know, throughout the, the whole call. Maybe yeah. maybe just to, to sorry, Luke, I know we don't have a ton of time, so we might have to um, uh, push it along. Maybe we want to give a view on partner call. Um, So, Shranya, do do you want to give us an insight into what the next step of the process looks like? This tends to be the partner call.
2: Yep, so um, then we invite the team to meet one of the partners on our team. So, um, typically, they would quickly present the company again but usually the partners are really well briefed before the calls so they already know what the company is about and what problem they're solving there's more to to like dig into any outstanding questions which we might have and also to form a personal connect with the founders because in the ending venture is a long-term relationship right so you would want to know and truly try to get like understand whom you're going to be working with for the next I don't know, uh, indefinite time frame.
1: <laughs> and how do we prepare the partners before that call?
2: So usually the team who worked, I mean, who did the initial few calls would prepare like a written summary of what all um, important points are about the specific company we're evaluating. So this would be more like what the market is like, what the product is like, our opinion on um, defensibility and the round and things like that. Um, we'd also like maybe present our hypothesis on, on what we think the company needs to become big. And then through that, we try to frame a few questions and uh, points to explore during our next calls.
1: And uh, also worth mentioning that someone on the team produces what we call a debrief. So this is a relatively detailed set of notes that uh, we tend to format as team, product, market, business model, traction, funding round. Um, We give a a high level insight uh, narrative on uh, who the founders are and, and what they're looking to do. And we distribute that not only to the relevant partner, but to all of the team to have visibility on Uh, that uh, next interaction maybe one question here I mean um, how do you find we're doing in terms of kind of building relationships with founding teams remotely
3: I can I can jump on this one Um, the, the only problem is I don't have a reference point as of what it looks like when it's not remote, um, I've heard stories about partners meeting founders, which to me is very exotic. Um, but I think we're doing a pretty good job, to be honest. I, I think that the process enables, um, you know, it enables what it's meant to enable, which is alignment of vision. Um, and and uh, maybe one thing to mention here, it's a bit I'm, I'm uh, branching a bit away from the question, but I think it's a very important topic for founders. Um, is the whole purpose of this process is not screening; it's aligning visions. And essentially, an investment should be done only if there is a hundred percent alignment on long-term vision for the company. Otherwise, it's essentially a recipe for disaster. And and this branches into a bit of a painful yet very important topic, which is the you know the passing, the rejection um, when it doesn't work. And usually it's um, we hear founders expressing some sort of frustration with maybe feedback that's not specific enough. Um, and, and, and there, what, what I want to say is it's usually a function of alignment, not being 100 percent. You know, sometimes it's 95 percent, 98 percent. And it's hard to pinpoint what exactly makes the, the, the vision misaligned. But that's usually what it comes down to. And it's pretty hard to capture in the feedback. But going back to your question, Sam, yeah, I think we do a pretty good job of of aligning on visions through these uh, remote calls.
1: And to your point, I think one of the things that we try to solve for, but we probably still need to get better at is giving founders um, an insight into where they are at in the process. Um, I think those of us who have, Gone through the process on the other side of the table so to speak so I've raised money as as operators know that it's very opaque it's very frustrating and it's very stressful so we we try and make that as clear as possible but you know I think if I'm perfectly honest with you we could probably do with with improving that as I think you know <laughs> most venture funds do as well it, it's one of the uh, um it, It's one of the drawbacks of, I guess, speaking to so many founders constantly.
0: I think it's also important to, to highlight that during this process, it's it's you know the founders selling the dream their dream but it's also an opportunity for us to sell ourselves as a fund because it's a very very competitive landscape at the moment and i think it's well worth highlighting here that i feel like we're really in a privileged position because our value proposition is so strong very few funds can say that we have 90 full-time operational uh, experts ready and waiting to support um, the the portfolio company once once we invest in them, and I think that really helps and I don't know about you guys the sell to to the founder of just saying look you know we are very unique in this market and we'd love to build a relationship with you and that's not just with me that's not just with an investment team that's with an entire company that's got your back um, and I think that's something often um, founders get very excited about um, and I think that that leads us quite nicely Sam right into to potentially the the next um, uh, step of the journey. But before that, I would love to hear how the partner call went with Butter.
1: I'm happy to to jump into that one. So effectively, Luke and I arranged an additional call with Uwe. I remember this was pretty close to the holidays, so to, to the Christmas period. Um, I think I remember feeling particularly exhausted at this point in time after sort of uh, eight months of, of lockdown and a very busy September to December period. Um, but it we definitely wanted to, to connect with Jacob again. Um, he wasn't actually technically raising at this point, but had sought a lot of um, inbound interest from, from other VCs. Um, we had the call with, with Uber, I think, to, to what Luke said earlier, Jacob's, enthusiasm, you know, vision for for the product uh, and for what they were building was was really self-evident. I think we, again, kind of married that with some thoughts that we had developed between that first call and the partner call in regards to kind of the general market opportunity. I think one of the key questions that we had throughout the DD process was, um, you know, what is the persona that they're selling into? Um, and the persona is specifically workshop facilitators or people that do um, training sessions, either internally at organizations um, or effectively for external organizations as as consultants. We didn't have a great sense on that persona, I think because none of us could really identify with, with them. Um, So we did a bunch of work in terms of figuring that out. I know that we asked a few people internally who do, I think, our training, uh, HR training, and do a few workshops with our companies in regards to the the problem itself. We also spoke to a bunch of external sources and got more comfort there. But I think generally that partner call was just hugely positive. There was a lot of momentum um, throughout that conversation. I think it felt relatively self-evident that we needed to take, Jacob, and this company to uh, management
3: presentation or investment committee. Luke, is that fair? Perfectly fair. I mean, it was a very interesting process to research the company. And it, it's, it might be interesting mentioning how we um, approached this. As Sam said, we, we did not have a great sense on, on, the, on, the, on the market and the customer persona. And so in addition to the, the reference calls and, and the ex- internal, external calls we made, we had a bit of market research, right? And I remember uh, being very excited because uh, Jacob mentioned that he would uh, appeal to coaches and my mother's a coach. And so I, and I immediately thought, okay, that, that, you know, there's a large market there and confirmed it by just looking for a job title. You know, how many people say they are facilitators on, on LinkedIn and, you know, okay, there's 2.5 million people doing facilitation and coaches and then design sprints. Well, so The particle as said earlier is meant to give um, a sense of alignment between us and the founders another thing that's key to align on at this stage for us is with the operational offering i think francesca gave some precious uh context earlier on but that's essentially the next step in this process for would be for us to organize uh, workshops and to showcase the potential operational offering sam do you want to take it from there yeah and I, i think this is quite an
1: important part for us because this um, is very much different to ninety nine percent of venture funds. You know, um, typically they don't have this operational offering, um, and for us, it's relatively important to give founders an insight into what it's like to work with the operational team. So I think you, you know one of the problems that we uh, have had before is. Um, aptly describing what the operational team do. You know, there's a lot of people with an incredible amount of experience. And what we tend to find is actually, whilst we're in the diligence process, connecting relevant uh, sort of departmental heads, whether that's Tama our CPO, Uh, whether that's Philip, who's historically been our our CMO, but now PP, um, with founders and and giving them an opportunity to talk through um, various elements of their business. Maybe Shrani, you want to provide a bit of context as to what those sessions are like?
2: Yeah, happy to do that. Um, I actually just sat in on an operational session a couple of days back. So we were doing a session with a um, with our chief data officer, Martin, and uh, a really technical product. So not to disclose any details, but it was super technical. And during this session, um, we basically ran through more granular details on the product. So I feel um, as an investment team, we pull up on our operational experts to just get a, a much granular understanding on how things actually work under the hood in this case but also it provided the founder a chance to to meet um, um, an expert in the field and maybe to bounce off ideas on how the market would evolve. So those were some of the topics they did talk about. And also it gives you a sense of what it would be like to have these people support you. So for example, um, once Project A invests in a company, you get to pull upon a wide range of experts in like various departments so data is just one of them. Sometimes we do sessions with our product officer or sometimes we do it with our sales and marketing head. So it, it really, it varies from company to company. And I think the main aim is just for us to both to gain a better understanding of the company and for founders to know what it would be like to work with us. I mean, I'm not sure if I'm missing anything, you guys?
1: No, I think that's correct. And I think one thing that most founders actually don't appreciate is you know, c- company building is often very lonely, especially if you're the CEO, you don't have people to um, always bounce a ton of uh, ideas off of. Um, and I think what we found historically is that a lot of founders actually really enjoy those sessions, um, because a they allow them to connect with someone that, you know, has a probably a pretty deep understanding of, of what they're building and some of the problems they're going to come across. But also just as an opportunity to be open with someone that can help guide around some of those potential pitfalls and, and problems. So uh, I think that opportunity to riff and kind of share, it's almost sort of like founder therapy. But I think most of the teams that we work
3: with really, really appreciate that. And this largely extends to the wider executive teams within startups. right? Um, it's it, The same goes for the CTOs. The CMOs, the CPOs, they all find counterparts within Project A with with whom they can riff on ideas and, and, and explore things they would not typically be able to discuss with people. And,
1: you know, we tend to do those sessions and whoever leads the session is usually head of a specific department, whether that's, you know, data, marketing, sales, et cetera, tends to provide us with just some notes on that session itself, you know, what they liked, what they didn't like, potential problems that are coming downstream. And and I I think this kind of speaks to probably the deal analysis that that we have to undertake as an investment team and as individuals, you know, where we have to piece together this mosaic of, of information we need to understand, you know, both the things that we are seeing in the market and reasons for why something might be interesting. We also tend to use the data points that we get from the operational team. Um, and that that for us is something that is super, super helpful, but can, you know, I think frankly, sometimes um, pose questions. I think we've had it before where, you know, there've been people on the investment team that have uh, liked a founder or product way more than than on the operational team and then i think it's about more getting to some understanding of what the consensus view is so for reference we did a product session with butter when we were looking at their seed round Uh, that i believe Tamma, who's our chief product officer sat in on i don't think myself luke or uva were actually in that session specifically um, which maybe speaks to the autonomy Uh, that most of the operational team tend to have. What we did find post that is we had very detailed notes from Tama who was incredibly excited about the product that they built, the roadmap, and connecting with uh, Butter's CPO more specifically. Maybe now we wanna go to just getting an insight on deal analysis from Luke.
3: Yeah, re- really happy to. Thanks, Sam. Um, I mentioned earlier this high-level framework whereby we want to see you know, a product that's superior, that's addressing a significant problem in a significant market and, and with a sustainable defensibility or or moat, as we like to call it. Um, but I think it's worth going into maybe the specifics of what we look for because those things can be helpful for founders, both for the pitch as well as for um, the way they they... they just talk about the company when 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 we have chats. The way I like to think about this is that, as as Sam said earlier, we're all doing a bit of pattern matching. Um, we've seen things working in the past, and that obviously influences the way we look at companies. So typically, what we tend to look we, we tend to look at five key dimensions that inform the way we think about a company. The first one is obviously the team. At such an early stage, um, the quality of the founder um, is is uh, going to be something we indexed strongly on the second bit is on the market uh, general ecosystem within which they operate which uh, leads quite naturally into the product and its superiority compared to existing solution we finally look at the business model how many will be made how they think about going to market and getting in front of people and lastly um, we like to get a sense of current traction maybe how customers interact with the product um, but this obviously differs widely According to different industries and um, in different stages. But I think it's, it, it'd be worth going deeper into each of those topics rapidly and, and see, you know, mention what we look for specifically. Maybe starting with the team, um, we usually look for founders with certain spikes that um, we've seen drive particularly impressive um, outcomes in the past. I know that I really like to see founders with a fantastic vision and a clear way to get there um so people that can make you dream dream that can you know reshape the way you think about a market you know through some clever uh, imagery some clever um anecdotes analogies or or just new way of calculating a market sometimes it's, it's just the way to go um, but yeah any any thought francesca sam shirani and what you'd like to see in the team yeah i mean
1: i think i definitely reiterate that. I mean, to some extent, I think you want to, you're solving for finding someone that has the X factor, however you define that. You you tend to know it when you you see it. Um, And that's obviously extremely high level. I I know that one kind of proxy that we've used before internally when just assessing uh, teams and founders is kind of asking ourselves the question, would I go work for this individual? Um, And that tends to work quite well as a bit of a forcing function around, you know, how well uh, they are able to get you or other stakeholders within the business, whether that's customers, other potential hires, other investors, excited about what the thing is they're building.
2: I think maybe something to add here, um, apart from the founder's visionary, um, vision building pictures, which you guys mentioned. I mean, I think I think a lot of emphasis is put on how well people can tell you a story. I mean, I think that's something really important. But I also feel for the more um the more quiet founders, the ones who are not so comfortable pitching. You also have things like how they how well they communicate, how well they've organized their data room, those kind of things. It's not really obvious, but but I feel like you know those kind of metrics sometimes also um do paint a really positive light about founders we see.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, another trait that we look for with founders, obviously, is the sort of product picking ability, uh, uh, an ability to create just outstanding products that, that that people, organizations love using that that bleeds quite nicely into the second bit of our uh, diligence process where we look at a product, assess you know the criticality of its use, um, how well it's designed, how nice is the experience, you know, one one uh, fairly common framework I would say, and something we think about, is you know, is it 10x better and cheaper than what you would find elsewhere on the market, um, w- which is usually a good proxy. Uh, going back to butter, I think this is really something that you know struck us as a very evident uh, ch- um, feature of this product that it's l- at least 10x better than the highly manual process of organizing work, organizing workflows. Uh, sorry, sorry, organizing workshops. Um, another thing we like to see in product that is very early stage um, is sorry, Sam, uh, giving you the mic right after. Something we like to see, or at least I like to see, is especially when you're in the relation building phase of things, is fast product iterations. Right, you would expect from one time to the other that something has changed, some hypothesis has been validated since you last spoken. Uh, but yeah, fast product iteration is definitely something. Sam, floor's yours.
1: I was going to say one of the things that was nice about Butter, nice and very meta, was that we actually did the session within Butter itself. So whilst other people might be using, you know, Zoom or Microsoft Teams, we were in the product whilst we were initially connecting with the company, which was both a pitch and relationship
3: building exercise, but also a product demo at the same time. And, and it, you could really tell, um, I would invite you listeners to try the button software, but you can really see the attention to detail and to user delight in the way they've they done things. And that's really something we pay attention to when we assess products. You know, products, they don't exist in a vacuum. Um, they usually come in the market. Um, and, and that's a very important part of our deep dives. This is typically something that we do the most research on just as a function of us needing to be very objective and diligent. With our understanding of where the company fits in the most more general ecosystem, because this is going to have an outsized impact on the exit opportunities. And maybe the, the, uh, the interesting bit for me, in when you assess a market is I would say primarily the timing. So, you know, you have to strike a good balance between finding a market that's attractive, but not too far out in the future. As well as not too uh, close in, in in the future either, because if it's if it's already you know a large and, and well developed market, you can expect um, already large players to be in there and in the competition to be quite dreadful. But if it's so far out in the future that your company cannot raise the next round, um, you're gonna have issues as well. Um, any, I tend to over-index as well on macro trends, um, as as I think they, they are they provide very interesting rails against which to uh, think your assumptions through but uh, but i'm sure uh, sam you have also and, and francesca you have some views on, on how we think about markets
1: yeah i mean i think this is probably the one the the one element of deal analysis where we've probably debated as an organization specific deals the most uh, and i suspect that it's kind of a confluence of factors there's you know market size where i think a lot of vcs have differing views on you know some VCs will uh, solve for finding companies that are building in in huge markets some will discount that and will probably use kind of Uber and Airbnb's early days as examples for for why it's less relevant Um, but second to that there's probably also a lot around market dynamics to your point Luke you know uh, how many solutions are there in the market currently Um, what are the dynamics of who they have to sell into the steps to procurement Um, the general sort of market uh, sentiment for for new products and and new solutions. I think we tend to spend quite a bit of time understanding those elements and those levers more than specifically the market size itself, though it does play somewhat of a role within that overall assessment.
0: Some funds see market sizing in a different way, so some take what it is, now and see its growth some say you know you can build it very much like what you were saying with airbnb but i think it's also worth discussing at this point about exits and how project a view exits and what we're expecting the company to to do and how other funds might be happier um, at at a different kind of exit or or rather a lower exit and I think that that sometimes can be quite challenging as a team to discuss of you know not knowing how this company is going to exit really but having an idea and I know that some members of the team are very keen on it has to be not a billion dollar company it has to be 10 billion. Um, And so that brings in a whole new dynamic of making a a discussion and a sell for this company, because we do have members of the team that are very interested in in making sure that our portfolio companies get to this number. Um, And unfortunately, there are not many that are going to get there statistically. So um, it does does play a part, founders who are listening, that we are very ambitious when it comes to selecting portfolio companies. And that's something we take into account many other funds might be happier with a $100 million exit because that's how their fund dynamic works. So um, it's worth making sure that you understand that um, as a founder and what your ambitions are when, when you approach Project A, because we're, we're looking for, for big exits here, I think.
1: <laughs> and that's a, that's a really good point. I mean, I think, you know, uh, specifically when we get to kind of partner or investment committee stage, Uh, quite a few of the passes that we've seen historically have been around a belief that the company can probably get to some scale, but not to a scale where it works for our fund dynamics. So, you know, we obviously invest out of uh, a fund, currently investing out of a $210 million fund. To return a multiple of that fund, you know, we do the maths that investing in 25 to 30 companies We need a few of them to get to outsized results. So, you know, multiples of billions, uh, ideally. So that's a a great point. You know, often we pass on companies, not because we don't believe that they will be great companies, just because we don't believe that there'll be companies that will meet a, you know, uh, a threshold that we require them to get to.
3: Absolutely. Those are fantastic points. And, and that that I, I would say are the most painful passes because usually we've gone so far because we like the founders, we like the product um, and, and, and we just can't get there with regards to the size of the total exit. And, and it's uh, those are the painful ones. It, it I think, uh, flows naturally into the business model part of things. We're talking about money. So let's, let's stay on the topic. Um, and the business model, I would say we generally look at two broad categories of topic within the business model one is the very simple question you know how does this company make money how how will they make money in the future and the second one is how do these people get in front of customers Uh, which is a very very hard thing to do Um, we tend to see people who are building amazing products uh, but maybe sometimes under index or under invest in the the thinking and the strategy around you know uh, unfair advantages when it comes to distribution, which especially in B2B is, is particularly hard. So th- that's what we look for. Um, you will often hear you know that an important metric is CAC to LTV ratio. I think that's a very good uh, thing to have in the back of your mind as a founder. Um, and and, and the, the metric usually is said to be, you know very good ratio would be anything above 3x for B2B software. And a reason why we, I mean, we can go into the history of this, but this is probably not the place. So the reason why we think so hard about cac 2 is just as a proxy to future profitability, um, w- w- which ties into the exit potential. Um, but yeah, so those, I would say from, on my part as the two things I, I look for, you know, uh, distribution advantage and sound path to profitability. Maybe um, Sam or Francesca Sharania, you have
1: um, other takes on this? I was going to say, I think the, kind of the business model part plays uh, a bit of a part with uh, market as well. You know, th- thinking back to when we did the work on butter, I think kind of the, the crux of that work was A, understanding how the dynamics of, you know, workshop facilitators and um, people who effectively do internal and external training sessions is like we didn't have a great sense on that you mentioned that earlier Luke and then I think second to that which is probably a a bit more with regards to pricing is you know with a bunch of existing tools as horizontal uh, video tools be it Microsoft Teams or Zooms just the want and desire for those customers and those personas to effectively pay for this um, I think one thing that we got comfort on and I think probably sort of nudged us in, in the right direction is, you know, the company had really solid early numbers uh, and probably more qualitatively had incredible amounts of customer love. So I'm actually just looking through the memo now and we, we list in the key risks part the competitive landscape. But in the likes, we list customer love, and we actually have a link to, I think we aggregated a 100 plus reviews of customers who are just kind of gushing around the product. So we use that as a bit of an early stage proxy in terms of the potential for, for monetizing them.
3: I think this is a good good time to speak about you know, on the how-to, right? What this looks like. Uh, typically, we, we go into those um, dimensions, uh, you know, we do our research and we put that all in a what we call a briefing book or a an investment memo, which is essentially a short form version of our whole thinking, uh, concentrated and, and catalyzed within a narrative on why we think a company is is an outstanding investment and why we'd like to partner with them in the long run. Um, and, and worth mentioning here that this this document is essentially a lot of things coming together. One, our research we mentioned, second is our, our hypothesis, which we uh, mentioned earlier as a way for us to source, but also to assess uh, potential investments. Uh, we, we come up with that hypothesis with regards to specific market and they would typically make it in there. Um, and the last one is just, um, you know founders and and one thing we've we've done in the past in some occasion is just to open source this memo um, and have a, a very open conversation with the founders on, on where we would see the company going um, in the long run and our current assessment thanks
0: Luke for I think that's that's been super helpful so it, it, it's essentially I think again just to add to your description of the memo almost starting from scratch so once we've um had that initial call you've had that initial call with butter um, you think yeah partner call is needed um, and then you write this debrief which is almost a mini memo right still covering those key topics that you you had previously spoken about but le- at less of a, a detailed um manner because you've only had a half an hour conversation with this this person or, or founders plural and then um, once uh the particle call happens things start to get very busy, I think is is fair to say. So we've just gone through the reference calls. And as you, as you said, look, that's all consolidated into this memo. Now, you said it's a short version of your mindset, but sometimes it can be pretty extensive um, in terms of really getting under the skin of the product. So I think what's, what's quite nice, particularly at Project A, is that we have lots of people contributing towards this memo. So it's not just two people's opinions, it's a lot of people's members of the team. And I think it's also worth mentioning that um, every week we, we meet up to discuss, as an entire investment team, the deals we're meeting. So we also have contribution from additional Um, investment team members that might not have a very close look into the deal but have outside perspectives of what they've also seen and so it really is quite an extensive document and this is all prepared in preparation for a management presentation Um, and even before the management presentation this memo is sent out to the partners but they we even organize a half an hour session beforehand to debrief the partners and I'm not sure whether Sharania you want to jump into that because it's actually a super important part of the process I think to make sure that everyone is up to speed and everyone is aligned um but maybe before that we go into that is there anything else you want to add in regards to to butter guys of like um once you prepared this memo like were you thinking yeah like this is going to be an absolute killer to present um in the management presentation and we've got all the information here or were there any outstanding questions that you had that you wanted to run by the team during the management presentation because this is kind of like the final chance right um to to get that deal over the line most of the time so be curious to know um your journey and experience there I think with
1: the memos, what tends to be really helpful from the writer's perspective is often when you're on calls with founders or you are discussing, you know, the company or the opportunity separately. Certainly, I find it's really easy to get excited about things, you know, you, you, you can talk about things under relatively high level terms. You talk about sort of future projections around what they could build. I find actually writing the memo keeps you pretty honest. You know you have to be ultra subjective and concise about what the opportunity is specifically and you're gonna get called out on bullshit if you're writing things which which frankly don't make sense so i speak for myself you know i think there's been memos historically that we've written where we've kind of concluded that we can't see uh, a route forward for for the company or more so an, uh, an investment from us in the company but i think when we wrote the butter one I think we actually really grew in confidence specifically around the market piece and getting a better understanding of, of workshop facilitators, their problems, their needs and how generally there's sort of a large scale opportunity which is not being met.
2: Yeah, maybe to add to that, um, I feel like sometimes we also involve the founders in, in our, um, memo, Not mem- I mean our hypothesis discussion and creation process. I think that's super important because it's it's quite a challenging decision to make to invest in a company. You're trying to project many things um, and it, it helps to break it down into a set of things which you need to believe a company has before you invest. And sometimes we hit like a stumbling block in some places where we're not too sure. So we often like just, you know, talk it out with the founders, tell them that these are the things we need to believe. Here's. Here are our concerns. What do you guys think about it? And i I think that's like super important because you know it just gets everybody on the same page. You in the ending, um, you just make a better, a better memo and a better presentation that way.
1: And I think one of the problems that we often have is, you know, we're trying to invest in outliers. Outliers typically are unpredictable and look very different to anything else that you've seen before. I think second to that is, you know, we do early stage venture, which is uh, inherently extremely risky. So I I find we often get into a discussion around sort of what is an acceptable level of risk with specific parts of the business, the product, the market, et cetera, which of course is uh, always super obvious in hindsight, but around the time that you're making
3: that decision, you know, very difficult to assess. What may be worth mentioning, one of the things here that's um, an important part of this process is just doing reference calls. I think um, Francesca mentioned it earlier. We typically try to de-risk, um, which is just a fancy word to say, improve our understanding of a company, um, by talking to people who might already use a product or be potential users, as well as with people who've interacted closely in professional settings with founders beforehand. And, and the reason I'm bringing this up is that there this can be a very opaque process from a founder perspective. And, and I'm sure it might be um, helpful to just open up what happens there and what we typically tend to look for. Um, on, on, on the customer reference side of things, what we I think what at least what I have discovered, you know, with this uh, these eight first month at Project Day is, is that you have to take these references with a grain of salt, just because you tend to have either extremely positive reactions from from customers or you know, pretty blasé, uh, if, if if that makes sense, reactions, which in either case are not necessarily good indicators of, of a fantastic company. What you want to assess and what we try to assess at this point is the depth of the problem, right? How painful is that issue for the founders? And, and you know, if we look back to the butter example, I think it's been painfully clear when we talk to people uh, giving workshops, that is just an awful process both as a facilitator, but also as, as a participant, it's just not a pleasant experience, um, whatsoever. So that's for the reference, uh, the customer reference, if anyone has anything to add, I'm happy to feel free to jump in or otherwise we can jump into the, 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 the personal reference one, which might be a bit of a, um, interesting topic as well.
1: Yeah. And I think it's worth saying with these, we are always cautious about how we approach them because know especially customer references for early stage companies are really holy you know often these companies don't have a ton of customers so the ones that they do have they want to you know nurture and take care of and uh, spending 15 or 20 minutes with uh, potential investors probably not a great use of their time so you know we always try and be uh, very cautious and very grateful when we do those uh, specific references Um, But what we tend to find is, you know, we do them late on in the process, typically. So either, I guess, in and around the uh, investment committee, the management presentation that we do, um, and
3: just before uh, we issue a term sheet. And I think what the precision Sam just added apply perhaps even more to the personal references. Uh, we are uh, very, you know, mindful, very grateful, very mindful of who we speak with, about what and um, in, in what manner. But essentially what we try to do um, for the customer, for the, sorry, not the customer, the personal references on the founders, we try to, you know, have an objective confrontation with regards to uh, our own assessment and the understanding and, and, and judgment about a founder, uh, uh, you know, about the founders, right? Then we, we would typically uh, try to see some traits that we see over and over um, being, you know, uh, leading to good outcomes, um, traits of, of leaders, of managers, of the Um And we look for specific examples and, and referenceable um, uh, actions or initiatives uh, that can speak to the quality of the founder. Important, grain of salt here as well because we realize that a great employee is not necessarily a great founder and vice versa but those things are also not mutually exclusive so it's really just a process of you know ensuring there's no uh, massive skeleton in the in in the in the uh, what's the now my closet. french is precisely skeleton in the closet that's uh, what, what, what this process for maybe we want to jump into
1: what the management presentation is like specifically. Um, Sharanya, do do you maybe wanna share what that session is like and the general sort of format and purpose?
2: Uh, Sure, Sam, but I think before that, we should probably jump into the briefing meeting. So usually before management presentation, we have a briefing meeting with um, with all the investment team and all the partners. So um, prior to this briefing meeting, we would have already shared the investment memo. So everybody has already, um, you know, gone through it, and they know they're like they have full they're fully up to date on what the situation is. So during this meeting, um, um, one of the team which worked on this deal usually introduces the deal, so gives a high level overview on um, what what the company we're evaluating is trying to do. And then we jump straight into like open questions everybody on the team has. So if it's something which we have already covered during our diligence, then we just, you know, give a give a quick reply to those, but otherwise we also uh, gather some points which we would like to di- dive into deeper during the management presentation. Yeah, okay, so during the management presentation, um, So that's when all the partners um, meet the founders. So usually by this time, um, the founders already know one or two of the partners um, from the prior calls. But then they get to meet the rest of the partners as well. So um, usually it's like a quick round of introduction on both sides. And then um, this is followed by like a 15-minute company pitch usually. and then we dive straight into QA. So on all the things we want to discuss and all the, I don't know, all the questions which we which we prepared or have uncovered during our previous calls, so we usually do a quick um, walkthrough of those things. And of course, like founders also get a chance to meet the rest of the team and ask their questions as well. So yeah, I think that's pretty much how it goes. The, the main thing here is like, we're not trying to put anyone on the spot. It's just to like get to know the whole team um, on both sides and, and, fully under- and make sure we fully understand what um, the company is up to.
1: For sure. And um, I think we've historically found that um, often we have a good sense of how we feel about the company going into that meeting. But I'd say it's actually generally quite unpredictable in terms of, you know, what the other partners might think and ultimately what the outcome tends to to be. Um, And specifically what I mean by outcome is, you know, whether we make a decision to issue the company with a term sheet, which is kind of the uh, natural next step in the process. Maybe Francesca, you want to give an insight into, you know, kind of the, the voting mechanism that we tend to use um, and effectively when we communicate to founders whether we'll be moving forward with a term sheet
0: yeah of course and a caveat with the fact that i think every fund does it slightly differently Um, but in our case at project day so as saranya beautifully put um we've had the uh briefing session and then the management presentation and actually a this is how I've done it in the past, approximately 10 minutes before the end. So probably even by then, the partners have made the decision of whether they're interested in, in saying yes or no. Um, I send out a survey, um, not not to, to, to tell you which one it is, uh, because... Uh, don't don't want to get into trouble but essentially we send out a survey to all the partners and they are responsible for filling it in and um there are a number of questions that we ask but at the end of the day the most important thing that we look at is whether um the partner is uh, either supportive um yes with conviction sorry either yes with conviction supportive rather no or absolutely no. Thankfully, we've never had an absolutely no. Um, So what we're really hoping for is a flush of all partners saying yes with conviction, but that isn't necessarily always the case. Um, And really, actually, what we say is that we need one yes with conviction, yes, with uh, conviction, and then the remaining at least to be supportive for us to hand over a term sheet. Um, So that's the typical uh, process. And we do normally get back to the founder um, with the decision very, very rapidly that day or early the day after, because what happens is that we go through the survey results. Um, as a team, as a partner, with all the partners, um, typically that day or, or the next. So it's a pretty rapid decision making process following the management presentation.
1: And like we were saying earlier, I think we try and always solve for giving founders exact clarity on where they are throughout the process uh, and just are, you know, um, and giving the founders a, an insight into how we feel about the opportunity generally. I think these days, especially where, you know, certainly at seed and series A rounds are getting done incredibly quickly. I think as a team, we've had to adapt to that, you know, new normal, so to speak. Uh, And I think we're relatively comfortable in terms of, you know, doing some of these investment processes from first call to term sheet. I think we did one last year in 24 hours, which is absolutely the exception to the rule. But I think very typically we tend to do them, uh, within probably two to four weeks.
0: And, and Sam, I've actually got the numbers here about um, the number of companies that got to that due diligence stage, i.e. we've created an investment memo. So ones that we've done last year and this year. Um, shall I share it with the, the listeners? That would be amazing. Yeah, sure. So actually very interesting um, that last year we did 66 memos or rather we wrote 66 memos. um, So it's the entire 2020 and we've really ramped it up this year. So we're just in May now and we've already done 30 memos. Um, So this year has been super busy for us and I think we can, we are all vigorously nodding our heads here.
1: (laughs) And I think what's super interesting is, If you look at the kind of distribution of uh, due diligence process or memos written in 2020, there's a pretty strong start to the year in January. I think we completed four investments um, and then another couple of two at the end of Q1. And then unsurprisingly, when COVID hit, you know, things somewhat dropped off a bit of a cliff, but we saw a very uh, strong finish in. Uh, Q4, we had an exceptionally busy September to uh, December period in in 2020. To to provide a bit more context, using Butter as a relevant example of a company that we have taken to management presentation, we have provided a uh, memo on, Uh, we had a number of rich discussions before the management presentation, and we had a great discussion during. I think this was actually our last management presentation of what felt like the world's longest year, which was 2020. I think it was on December 19th. um, So right before the the holiday period. Um, And the discussion was great. I mean, I think kind of going into that session, the things that we really wanted to understand was kind of A, the depth of the problem itself. So just how underserved our workshop facilitators and why can they not be served by existing sort of horizontal video tools. Um, B, obviously, I think it was super important for all of the partnership to develop a relationship with Jacob for us to be able to figure out how we can help him and help the rest of uh, his team as they go forward. And I think C, just getting an understanding of how they think about the product roadmap long term, specifically around the workflow that they wanted to build. Post that meeting, I think we communicated to Jacob relatively quickly that we wanted to issue a term sheet. I think we had asked him for a couple of personal references at that point, and we then did a um, product session with Tamar on the operational team. That whole process from management presentation to issuing the term sheet, I think took under 24 hours. We had uh, a ton of positive references. We had a really good operational session. And I think we felt really good uh, at that point about wanting to work with Jacob and the rest of the Butter
3: team. And we ended up signing, uh, received a signed term sheet, sorry, on um, December 23rd, end of the day, if my memory serves well, which yes, shows how hard working Jacob is. We,
1: we, uh, which was my birthday.
3: Um, oh! I, I, I
1: remember receiving the call, and I said I had to say that this was the second best gift I'd got today because my girlfriend was in the living room as well. So
0: amazing! I love that story and uh, very diplomatic of you there, Sam. <laughs> Good job. Um, and yeah, I mean that that's such. A, I think it's such a nice way to end this podcast, right? Of of taking our listeners through the entire journey with with butter, which is an investment we're really really excited about i think it's well worth caveating the fact that this is this is our process so far at project a we're always um reassessing whether this is the right process for the right time i.e covid non-covid and i imagine it will will uh, change a, a little bit um as as we evolve as a fund but hopefully this was a very interesting insight and i think Um, it's important to note that not every fund works like this so it's always an important question to ask as a founder what is the process like because it's, it's individual from fund to fund and we have that very unique component right of getting the operation team heavily involved from from almost the the second conversation that we're having with with the founder to really give the founder a good indication of what we're all about and our our considerable value add so yeah make sure that you ask for it for specific people on our team if you want to speak to them because i'm sure they'd be very keen to speak to you um and that would get us super excited um, as well um and yeah just a huge thank you to to anyone that's been listening if you've got any questions please feel free to reach out to all of us. I think we're all pretty active on on LinkedIn. As we previously mentioned, we reach out to founders all the time there. So if we're not reaching out to you, reach out to us, please. And thank you so much again. Bye. We
3: hope you enjoyed our podcast. If you did, how about you subscribe on Spotify and or iTunes and give us a rating. Thanks guys.